When I was in my 20s, I joined a cult. Six months later, I found out that he ended up marrying a distant cousin. To confess our tequila-drenched love to each other in a troughed Brooklyn men's room. Long story. Short. Hard rock and heartache. My therapist, I told him about this, and he was like, you shouldn't do this. Hey, everybody. Thank you again for coming to our third Long Story Short. I'm really excited tonight. We have a very diverse group of people. It's going to be a lot of fun. Again, we're this is an ongoing series. It's every other month uh, featuring, you know, five to six storytellers. We're going to have another one on March 16th. The theme of that uh, event is Past Lives. I think we have one more slot left for that. If any of you guys are interested, come see me. And uh, I'm personally very excited about that one because it's going to be, uh, I have a really good one. So let's get started. Debbie Kane is an editor and a freelance writer on the seacoast. When not attempting to get her kids to explain Snapchat, which I don't understand either, she writes about various lifestyle topics, including home and design, drinks, food, the arts, and fittingly, for this month's long story short topic, weddings. You may also find her running a local trail or standing on her head in yoga class. Please welcome to the stage, Debbie Kane. When I was in my 20s, I joined a cult, or something like one. It's called the Sterling Institute of Relationship. I joined by attending the Sterling Women's Weekend. Sterling is A. Justin Sterling, the guy who leads it. The weekend is a 48-hour experience. The Sterling Institute could be called, well, yeah, cultish. I'm not really what you call touchy-feely, and I wasn't when I signed up for the weekend either. I lived in Manhattan and worked for a Fortune 50 company in public relations. My life revolved around my job. I left my apartment at 5.15 a.m. I got home around 7.30 at night. I worked out at the company gym, ate meals at the company cafeteria, shopped for snack food, a.k.a. groceries, at the company store, and I never saw my roommate. My love life, or what passed for one, was a train wreck. My significant relationships with men at that time had included a longtime college boyfriend who I worshipped so much that I'd watch him sleep. He broke up with me as soon as we graduated. A post-college boyfriend who paid his way through school by selling drugs. Another boyfriend who friends were convinced was gay. And a struggling actor-slash-comedian who paid his rent by managing a telephone sex line. So when my coworker Amy told me about the weekend workshop that would transform my life, especially my love life, I said, sign me up. Amy was smart, successful, pretty, and dating a cute British boy. I mean, really, what did I have to lose? Now, this was 1990, before cell phones, before Google, and you couldn't find the Sterling Institute of Relationship or Justin Sterling online. So I was going on my friend's recommendation. A clue about what to expect was on the weekend registration form, which was designed in the same colors as a feminine hygiene product. <laughs> the goal of the women's weekend was at the top to engage in the process of locating the source of your power and discovering and dissolving the barriers between you and manifesting that power in your relationships and in the world. Today, the Sterling Institute's website says The weekend offers women everything they need to have the successful relationships they want, which is pretty heavy stuff for a two-day $500 workshop. For confidentiality reasons, Amy said, she couldn't tell me exactly what went on for those two days. You have to experience it for yourself, she said. Trust me, you'll have a huge breakthrough. Call me naive, but I believed her. So there I was, several weeks later on a Saturday morning, clutching my coffee outside a midtown Manhattan school, waiting to get into the women's weekend. I was really nervous, but the hundred or so other women in line looked just as nervous as me. Actually, when I saw the other women, I was relieved because we all looked and sounded like a cross-section of the women's shoe department at Marshall's. <laughs> So maybe if I just pretended I was trying to find the right pair of shoes, I wouldn't get nervous. We had to sign more forms, one citing confidentiality and no photography, another asking, asking for permission to be videotaped, and ushered into the school gym by a small army of men and women. I later learned these folks were graduates of earlier weekends. The men have their own two-day experience called the men's weekend. 
These silent minions slipped in and out at various times. Their purpose was supporting us, which could mean passing us a microphone to talk, videotaping us, and supposedly the only person who would look at the videotapes was Justin Sterling, or serving us lunch or dinner. Mostly they stood and watched us, probably to make sure we wouldn't leave. For the first hour or so after we were seated, nothing happened. No sign of Justin Sterling, no announcements from the silent minions, nothing. Just a hundred increasingly pissed off women wondering what the hell was going on. I learned later that these reactions are what Justin calls opportunities to learn about yourself and how you act in relationship with others. <laughs> women demanded to know where Justin was and when the weekend would begin. One woman said, maybe this is the weekend. Maybe there is no Justin Sterling. Someone else yelled, bullshit. Where is he? Threats started being hurled at the minions, and this went on for what seemed like forever before a short, stout man with a wireless mic strode into the room urging us to surrender to the process. This, then, was Justin Sterling. A. Justin Sterling's real name is Arthur Kasargian. Despite being a leader of relationship-based workshops, he's not a licensed therapist or a marriage counselor. He's also been married and divorced at least twice. He wrote two out-of-print books that were published in the early 1990s. The Sterling Institute website says that Justin's visionary notion that men and women are fundamentally different was revolutionary when he founded The Weekends in the late 1970s. <laughs> you know, and maybe it was. A lot of what he preaches can be found in relationship books that other people have written, and at the very least in Cosmopolitan magazine. Justin spent a good part of the weekend challenging our ideas about what successful relationships with men look like and what it really means to be female Interesting observations, since he's a man. Here are a few highlights. Women are 100% responsible for the success of their relationships. Never trust what a man says. Trust his actions. The notion that a marriage is 50-50 has made us gender confused, where men are wimps and women have become she-men, and so on. Throughout the day, women ju challenged Justin's statements. He was both sarcastic and condescending. It was exhausting to listen to, and after a woman complained about the cost of the weekend, he told us, when you hear something that, you, that causes a breakthrough for you, yell, I got my money's worth. <laughs> there weren't many of us hitting the jackpot at that point. <laughs> but then, Saturday night, came the anger exercise, designed to have us confront our anger so that we could open ourselves to new relationships. We were paired up and told to take turns yelling at our partner about something we were angry about. The other person had to encourage her partner to yell till they weren't angry anymore. My first partner yelled about her crazy mother. And then I yelled, my father is a lousy jerk. This went on for a while, and then we switched. <laughs> now, primal scream therapy is not my thing, but it was, however, cathartic for many of the women who were screaming and crying about everything from physical and sexual abuse to ungrateful kids. Me, I finished with a splitting headache and the notion that my dating problems were really pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. I almost left the weekend during the anger exercise, and as you'd expect, the weekend strongly discourages you leaving. But maybe it gave me my money's worth because I was compelled to stay. Some of the weekend's messages resonated with me. Accountability, vulnerability, not quitting, and yes, letting go of anger. I also enjoyed meeting my fellow Marshall shoppers, women who felt compelled to stick it out. So I stayed. I stayed after the anger exercise when we grieved for our hurt selves and then comforted each other. I stayed when we celebrated our new selves by dancing around to 80s hits like We Are Family and New Attitude, <laughs> while Justin sat in his director's chair in the middle of the room, grinning like a jack-o'-lantern. I stayed for the corny graduation ceremony where we stood in a circle staring at each other, holding candles and roses, sharing about how much we'd learned and transformed over two days. I even agreed to join a women's team, not a group, a team, Six women from my weekend who met weekly to talk about what we learned and support each other. I stayed involved with a women's team and the Sterling Institute of Relationship for two years. Two years. For me, it was a little bit like eating Twizzlers. There was just something about it that met a need. It wasn't just figuring out why I had no life. Uh, the women I met provided meaningful relation companionship outside my job. They were mostly professional women looking for the same things I wanted, a purpose beyond work, close relationships with family and friends, a good marriage or long-term relationship, and we were all united by our wacky weekend experience. Of course, the team would have been hunky-dory if the Sterling Institute wasn't involved. Because once you did the weekend and joined a team, you met once a week for two hours over the course of three months. And, this was big, your team had to host a night for friends and family to learn about the weekend. 
If you didn't enroll anyone in the weekend, you had to answer to a Sterling Institute leader who asked what your barriers were to sharing the experience with others. Women who enrolled other women in the weekend were highly praised. I, however, was a women's weekend recruitment failure. I never enrolled anyone in the weekend. It just felt weird to tell each other, trust me, you'll get your money's worth. <laughs> Being on a team meant attending meetings all hours of the day or night. It also meant spending lots of time on the phone getting supported by other women or supporting them if they were struggling with something. When you set up a phone call, you were expected to follow through regardless of where you were. If you missed your scheduled phone call in Sterling speak, it meant something about you and your commitment to your life. Missing a call practically gave me panic attacks. I'd find myself sneaking into empty offices or bedrooms to take calls. Once I even ducked under my desk for 10 minutes so the coworkers wouldn't hear me talking on the phone. My family thought I was nuts, and to this day, if I'm late for a call, I can hear the voice of a Sterling leader saying, what does this say about you and how you honor your relationships? I met my husband, Eric, during the time I was involved with Sterling. I was a little hesitant to tell him about my involvement at first, but to his credit, he didn't think I was crazy or run in the other direction. And no, he's never done a men's weekend, nor have I asked him to. He was a little more concerned after we moved to New Hampshire and I found a women's team up here. At one point, I was driving to meetings all over Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine in all kinds of weather at all hours of the day or night. I once drove four hours through a snowstorm to a meeting in Boston, and I was on the phone all the time. I wish I could say there was a dramatic end to my involvement with Sterling. I simply got tired of driving, meetings, the endless phone calls, and the guilt trips, and maybe I'd finally got my money's worth by that time. In the early days, someone would have called to find out why I was quitting and try to talk me out of it, but no one tried to convince me to stay. In fact, once I left, no one other than my immediate teammates stayed in touch. I'd long since lost touch with Amy, my original sponsor. A couple of teammates attended my wedding, but eventually we lost contact as well, a result of busy lives or inertia. And to this day, I haven't seen or spoken to these women in nearly 20 years. The Sterling Institute of Relationships still exists. So do the Men's and Women's Weekends. The organization has begun a cult, and Justin has been called a fraud, a megalomaniac, and even been accused of a few crimes. I don't bear any ill will towards Sterling Institute, and I know people have attended other workshops like it, like asked in the Landmark Forum. I learned a lot about compassion at the weekend for myself and others. I met some interesting women, and I don't take my relationships for granted. But don't call me on the phone. I'm honoring my commitments by not answering. Thanks. Thank you so much. I kind of want to go to one of those weekends, so you guys, I don't know. It's, it might be kind of fun, right? Okay. All right, next up, we have Rachel Naveau. She's a New Hampshire native, currently living in Barrington, New Hampshire, with her two bands, Soft Eyes and the Yawns, and she lives in a big Civil War-era farmhouse. She likes to pass time by playing music, indoor gardening, writing poetry, and being alone. Our rock star for the evening, who's going to join us tonight, Rachel Nevue. I'm going to sit down and put my reading glasses on. This is a confessional. It's about breaking up with your boyfriend you're in a band with for another band member. <laughs> the salt filled the cracks in my fingers. The salt got in the cracked dry skin around my peeling yellowed fingernails, but it's fine. It's just dry skin. Fuck the world, says my hatchback's rear window and everyone driving behind me would know what I meant if they got a chance to gaze upon my dirty, bloodied hands gripping the steering wheel. My mind is flickering between exciting change and never-ending shame. The pump stopped at 53 bucks. I hope my gym membership doesn't go through, because how sad to overdraft on a lifestyle I just don't have. Soon I won't have this dread or worry in my stomach I've been carrying off and on for six years during my 30-minute commu commute home from work. I can go back to that never-ending shame spiral I'm so used to, 
my second-generation Catholic guilt. I had four bedrooms in my childhood, raised ranch. The first one upstairs was painted yellow, had it for a year. The wind would blow hard against the back of the house, and the windowsill buzzed loudly enough to wake me up startled. I traded it out for one in the front, painted blue, with lilac bushes below, but the constant sound of 18-wheelers backing in and out of Blastec drilling and blasting corp would wake me up startled. So I moved to a room in the basement that used to be my dad's. I had insomnia on that one, so I moved into the musky room in the basement with the pink carpet that took spring floods the hardest. I learned to play guitar there. The exposed boiler was loud and startled me from sleep, so I moved out. I was sexually active in the last three bedrooms, and it's not unlike my first apartment in New Hampshire. A two-bedroom with my boyfriend and bandmate, and when the bigger apartment across the hall opened up, we moved into it. 12 Union Street to 14, except we invited our band to fill up the other bedrooms. We all got to share weed and rent. Brian Levin played drums in the basement, chain smoking, looking through his boxes of junk he's collected over the years, the kind of junk that's actual junk, like bones and rocks from all over, <laughs> weird pornography, cassette tapes, Korean music from Korean restaurants. <laughs> when it was time to kick him out, I did. We rounded up our new band members and moved all the way to the country to play fucking Pioneer together. <laughs> I've had four bedrooms in this house, too. Went from 254 Stagecoach Road to 254A. Makes me wonder if I just can't be happy where I am. I know it to be true. These patterns our lives follow will last forever till the true self emerges and points the finger draws Venn diagrams and shows us our true nature. We're forced to change or accept, but maybe we don't meet this specter until we lay in some hospital bed after a blotched blood transfusion or in our mother's basement, unconscious with a needle in our arm or randomly trapped in a crushed car. Our last breath escapes, it's shaped like a ghastly finger and it's wagging in our closing eyes. I wish it would come sooner. It's Christmas Eve, I don't want to go home. I developed this habit of deciding I really like whatever song's on the radio when I drive up the hill, Mount Misery, to my house, and I gotta keep driving so I don't miss it. Please don't cut the jam on Don't Fear the Reaper. I want more cars on the road that say fuck the world on their salty backsides so we can all parade around together listening to a long, boring jam full of arpeggios and slick production while you procrastinate breaking up with our partners on Christmas Eve. Figures the day I try to have this parade, the only cars I see are freshly waxed with reindeer antlers on, drivers chugging gas station coffee, singing along to baby it's cold outside without anger at its rapey words, Fat faces with smiles and kids in the back believing in Santa. And here I am, bombing down these roads with shot struts and a bad attitude. <laughs> the shark cut the jam. I don't care. It sucks. Maybelline's front two... That's my car, Maybelline. R.I.P. Front two wheels make it over the dense plow pile Doug and I never bothered to shovel. She slides her wear reels into the icy grooves in the driveway. I know if I sit in the warm, sunny car long enough, Doug's going to open the front door, smile, wave, let me know he wants to see me and he wants to hear all about my day like he's done every day for the past six years. Makes me want to puke thinking about how sad it is when someone tries to love. They accidentally put their love tightly around your neck and suffocate you. Can't stand to see them standing behind the screen door. The house is warm, which if I didn't worry about running out of wood would be nice, but the stack's going down, the roaring fire's superfluous, love constricts tighter around my throat.
come in the kitchen, Grandma Jupiter sings. I know he's happy because Grandma Jupiter usually makes her appearance when he's cooking his slop, thinking it's gourmet, and slips into this silly character modeled after Julia Child. Sucks I was prepared to break up with Doug, but I don't know how to approach Grandma Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> The house looks tidy. I respect his wish and don't go in the kitchen. Soon the house will be mine. I walk over to his messy desk full of metal clippings, wires, look around for a lighter. A cigarette's what I need. Eight minutes of preparation, eight minutes of chances to go through all the possible things he might say to me, all the responses I've cataloged in my selfish brain. The sofa smells like our sick Mona, but so doesn't the whole house. She's laying under the couch, eating her feet. When Doug picked her out at the Humane Society, he said she just needed a bath. But really what she needs is her meals cooked for her every day and a bath every night. He said when she gnaws at herself, it's a grooming bite. But she'll bleed and you can hear her get down to the bone. She was my first dog. I hope he takes her when he moves. I hope he'll move. Almost done, Grandma Jupiter hollers from the kitchen. He's been wrapping my presents. I cook Mona's food 10 pounds at a time for a three-day portion of organic ground pork, sweet potato mash. Poor Mona. Doug adopted her so I could feel like a mother, but I don't. I'm just sad and repulsed and fearful of her. Her skin falls off her body and I sweep it up, but the smell stays. Her three-inch nipples and paws flake the most and people point at her when I walk her. She's sweet despite her suffering, and that's pathetic, and that's why I'm sad, repulsed, and fearful. My band has four tours booked over the next six months, and if the band doesn't break up after Doug and I do, who's going to cook for Mona? Hopefully someone can handle her, because I sure as hell can't. 2012's been a good year for her band, but just like the Mayans predicted, the world ended. We were ever so fortunate to feel an earthquake a few weeks before the solstice. Mona slept through it. I smiled and laughed and felt full of wonder, while Doug ran outside the house into the cold and crouched around examining the foundation. Alone, of course, and only able to relate to myself, I prayed his efforts were in a vain gesture of deep-seated paranoia. Our old house was going to come crumbling to the ground, and maybe it would happen fast while I laid blissed out high on nature's ride. Probably not, though. It would happen while we were asleep in bed, with our backs turned to each other in a cold, small attic bedroom. I'd be asleep and unaware of the timber beam landing perfectly on my head, causing my death. He'll never understand that it's a fun, bumpy ride, and examining the cracks in a cracked foundation will only bring upon madness. I wished Luke were with me on the couch instead of Doug. We could have pretended it was San Francisco, 1906. We'd have to kiss each other to stay alive. I wished I were Mona. My presents for Doug were wrapped with ribbon curls and such care and intention to hide the fact that I didn't care. A CSNY shirt, way too small for him, perfect size for me, got it online. And a stuffed pillow with the inscription, I pine for you and balsam too. Purchased with Luke and meant for Luke. We were on a date, but the kind of date a conscientious adulteress would go on. No touching, no talking, no kissing, just making eyes across the store, maybe showing a little too much excitement about whatever comes out of each other's mouths. He moved in with us at the beginning of the fall, and it only took three months to think in terms of true love and fate. I didn't really pay attention to him at first, he was one of Kevin's young friends who drank a lot of beer and partied loudly when I'd try to go to sleep. I had no idea we'd end up sneaking away from the rest of the band on winter solstice 2012, the end of the world, to confess our tequila-drenched love to each other in a troughed Brooklyn men's room 
holding each other tight, kissing like we mean it, without tongue but tears of confusion in an exceptionally disappointing show at Death by Audio. It's time now, here he comes, chipper and aloof. Doug left Grandma Jupiter in the kitchen, it's just me and him, our presents, my secrets. I'm pissed he hasn't figured it out yet. How can you be so blind to true love? It's so obvious when people are in love, it's like a clear jelly connects their eyes together and it's gooey and I don't know where it comes from. Maybe they press their eyes together first, pupil to pupil, and then they're joined. Four eyes become two. One in the front looking ahead and one in the past digging it up. But it's Christmas, Doug uttered over and over and over again, but it's Christmas. I stood in the middle of the room, towering over his breaking seated body. I'm six foot one in my black leather Christmas boots he picked out for me trying to explain why I can't give him his gift, feeling really tall and really mean. I can't pretend. I mumbled and cried some words about honesty and all's fair and love and war, love's blind, I'm so sorry. He called me a cunt. Walked around slamming doors, stood there hunched over and I accepted it. I was worrying if I were a pervert an actual sadist. I felt like one in those leather boots. I'm glad we started the breakup before sunset. Doug promised his mother a song for Christmas. She asked him to make her relaxing music with flute and guitar, our two primary instruments, so she could meditate. And her lazy boy, surrounded by all of her junk, but not like Brian Levin's junk, junk like Hallmark figurines of happy families and gimp keychains, TV tables full of prescription pills, newspaper over cat piss kind of junk. His body twitched involuntarily in new places. Not just the bridge of his nose, eyes, or wrist, it seemed like his ears could move on their own, and his elbows and his feet would have bursts of heavy tapping, keeping time to the acoustic guitar trembling on his knee, microphone close to the sound hole. He wouldn't let me sit. I turned my back while he recorded. Finger-picking a heartbreaking melody, he pulled out of some fold in his brain. Probably where he keeps his pain. I didn't know that rhymed. <laughs> I stood in silence listening to him start and stop and start, then he'd pluck the wrong string and break down in tears and curse at me, not allow me to comfort him. The flute's a hard instrument to play when you're crying because the flute is ruled by breath and crying rules breath. Crying controls the whole body. Your whole body cries with you. Doug and I felt uncomfortably comfortable recording each other after our vague but stern breakup. Maybe he's a sadist too. Maybe we're both perverted. We let our bodies play our instruments and I wondered how long do I need to wait before I go to Luke? Drool was coming out of the corners of my mouth. My lips felt like they were going to fall off. Our peaceful meditation track turned into an eight-minute instrumental about the rise and fall of love. Suddenly, I fell into an enchanted world of Snow White, where I, the evil queen, put into the glowing, hot torture shoes, forced to dance to my death. The wood stove was so hot, it could have turned red. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Rachel. Let's see who's going to be our next reader. We have three brave souls, which I really appreciate. Um, and I folded them up extra, so who knows? All right, here we go. Pat Gale, is Pat Gale here? Are you... S Pat Gale, you're the one who's recording tonight. How did I pick you? Yes, everybody, a round of applause for Pat Gale. Uh, 
All right. How's everybody doing? Good? Give it up for Beth, 3S Art Space. It's pretty fantastic. Come on, you guys can do more. Yep, up, 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 up. I'm recording this for a podcast, so I really want that reaction. <laughs> um, so, what is it? Rock and roll and, and love? Is that what it was? Heartbreak. Oh, yeah, same thing. Same thing. It's, um, so, um, let's see. This is a story. So, it's not really, I don't know, it's punk rock. Not really rock and roll. When I grew up, rock and roll is kind of dumb. Dead. But... Um, I listened to a lot of punk rock, and this is kind of what got me into doing this sort of stuff, is this first thing. So, um, in high school, I was also sort of a loser, I guess you could say. But it was like self-prescribed. I wasn't actually a loser. Looking back, I was totally cool. But <laughs> then, super loser. Uh, <laughs> So there was the girl in school who was like the punk rock chick who was like super cute. Everybody wanted the punk rock chick. So uh, she wound up moving to my town, which was not the same town my school was in. And um, I was walking by one day and saw her and she told me my shoes were cool. And I was all, cool. So, um, so I like walked home and then a few days later, it was the first time in my life where I kind of subscribed to the like fuck it mentality. Where I was like, oh, she lives in my town, and I'm kind of bored, and she's cute. So <laughs> I just went and knocked on her door and asked her if she wanted to hang out, and it surprisingly worked, and she wanted to hang out. And we kind of started dating, which was, like, super cool. And that was, like, the first time where I was like, wow, if you just kind of say fuck it, you can kind of do whatever you want. <laughs> um, so we dated for kind of a while, and she was really fucked up. But... <laughs> Um, we wound up hanging out and it was kind of cool cause I was going through stuff too. And we, I don't know, that was kind of my first real big dating experience, which was like when I was like 15, I think. And then, um, so we were dating and she started talking about this guy, Denny a lot, who was in this super cool punk rock band called the Rydells. If you've never heard of the Rydells, it is the Ramones. A complete ripoff of the Ramones. They call themselves like Denny Rydell and blah blah Rydell. <laughs> they're they're the guys that pay to go on the Warp Tour. Um, so 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 she's like super pumped about this dude Denny. She tells me all about him all the time, and she just likes this dude because he's this cool punk rocker. And the, so this is one of the stories. This blows my mind why she thinks this guy's cool. She tells me. He, before shows, he gets so nervous that they have to pull over to truck stop, truck stop because he shits his pants, like flat out. But she thought it was so punk rock and so cool. This is high school. <laughs> so, so, she, so eventually she winds up hanging out with this dude, surprisingly, and then she winds up like kind of leaving me for this guy, which was like a, my first like real heartbreak. So I was all like upset. And she didn't necessarily leave me for the dude as much as just kind of like slowly stop asking me to hang out and like slow. Yeah, she kind of ghosted me. <laughs> so it was probably, I don't know, a few years in high school. I still just here. But then after that, I didn't see her for a while. And then I wound up running into her and this guy, Denny, in the same town. And they were coming back to visit. And it was super awkward because I was like, I heard you got married. And they were like, no, we didn't. <laughs> but, um, but like the whole time I was sitting there trying to be nice, but the whole time I was kind of like, fuck you, Denny. Um, but uh, then a little bit, a little bit longer went by. I think it was about, um, about a year went by. And I was at a All Together Now concert, which is a Beatles tribute band from like here. Uh, they were playing in Prescott Park in 2006. And I met this girl there, and she was totally cool. And her name was Jacqueline, and now we are married and have a two-year-old, which is pretty cool. And uh, I wound up running into this other girl who I dated then, and... Um, she was, I was like doing deliveries for this farm I work for <laughs> up in the mountains. And like I walked into this restaurant and turned around and she was running the restaurant. And it was kind of like one of those, oh shit. 
But, but it was one of the first times that I ran into her, and um, I thought about my daughter, and I thought about my wife, and um, the first time, rather than fuck you, Denny, I said thank you, Denny, for showing me what I really wanted to do. That's it. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to go there. <laughs> All right. So I just want to say, uh, we had a couple of people not able to come tonight. So before I bring up our last person tonight, I would like to uh, come up with uh, a story that I'm working on. And the story that I'm working on right now is a story that I would like to eventually tell my daughter. Now, my daughter is three, so I got a really long time to work on this one. Uh, but the story I would like to tell her is why you should never date a musician. Uh, and we're going to start out uh, in 19, oh God, maybe 89. Uh, the first musician I ever dated was in the seventh grade. I dated a young man who I knew in band named Keith. He played the piano and the tuba. And I know, nothing says love like tuba. And uh, we, <laughs> yeah, we were both, uh, you know, kind of the cream of the crop of band, you know, kind of the better kids. So we got to do a lot of things that, uh, I don't know, band is a really weird thing. I don't know if any of you guys were in band. But if you're one of the better musicians in band, you kind of get to do whatever you want. It's a really great setup. And uh, so we kind of were in a group of kids who got to do whatever we want, and we were... Um, you know, we ended up going out together and which in seventh, whatever seventh grade going out is, it's like talking on the phone and, uh, we were on a band trip and, uh, we were sitting next to each other on the way home and it was very dark on the bus and I pretended to fall asleep on his shoulder and kind of did this thing and he kind of did this thing. And then I had my first kiss and it was just so wonderful uh, but then I kind of figured out that he played the tuba and liked Billy Joel a little too much, and so I moved on from him. And uh, the next musician that I went to uh, was Ryan. Now, Ryan wasn't a musician when I first started dating him, but he decided while we were dating that he wanted to be in a rock band, and he had zero musical talent, so of course he was going to be the singer. And the singer part of it, I guess you could say, he kind of just wailed a lot. And uh, he was really wealthy, so he like front fronted all this money for his uh, high school band to go into the studio. And so he had like a tape. And so like all my girlfriends are like listening to it. Uh, and so they're just like, oh, this is so cool. But then he started kind of hanging out with my best friend a lot. And then uh, he broke up with me, and I was devastated, and I wrote him this long, poetic note being like, oh, you broke my heart, and my eyes are sore from crying for you. <laughs> and I gave it to him, and he read it, and like later I was like, so did you read my note? And he was like, yeah, that was the stupidest thing I've ever read. <laughs> Oh, that was so lame, and I was so devastated. And then two weeks later, he started dating my best friend, and that kind of broke my heart a little bit. Uh, but then it became really great because all of my girlfriends in our little girl clique hated him too. So it was like, your boyfriend friggin' sucks. You should break up with him. Uh, and so that became kind of a fun thing to do in high school. And then uh, after that, I went to band camp because I was in band, and that's what you do. And I met the most beautiful boy in the world named Michael. And Michael played the alto sax, and he was very good. And he looked exactly like Richard Gere in... Uh, the movie, An Officer and a Gentleman. So of course I was in love with like a capital L. Like this guy was like a huge catch. 
and I would pretty much do anything for him. And I spent my entire high school career like smitten with him. And he lived in Rhode Island and I lived in New Hampshire. So of course, who, what the hell was going to happen there? Who knows? But, uh, that went nowhere. So then uh, I went to college, and college was great because I went to music school. So of course I had, the, it was like musician buffet. You know, it was like, would you like a bass player with a ponytail? Would you like uh, a drummer uh, who's also in a punk rock band? It was like, the choices were endless. It was amazing. Um, but also terrible because I couldn't make a decision, and so I ended up making up with half, making out with half of them, and then now I can't date any of them because they all know that I made out with them all. So that was terrible. So I was kind of lonely in music school until somebody took pity on me, and his name was Gabe. And Gabe took pity on me because I was a senior, and he was younger than me, and he played piano, and his claim to fame was that he was in a back, country version of Backstreet Boys called Six Shooter. <laughs> and he traveled the country circuit. Uh, he played the keys. And uh, he had girls fawning for him uh, all over the uh, Mississippi Valley. And, you know, so he was obviously a catch. And I liked Gabe a lot. He was super sweet, and he did lots of things for me. And he, but he was, like, a little young. And, uh, like, you know, I was a senior in college. I was 22. And, you know, he had no chest hair, and I was looking for a man. And so Gabe just wasn't cutting it, and I felt really bad, and I ended up cheating on him with Matt. And Matt was another alto sax player. Uh, just do not go to the alto sax players. And um, Matt had been in love with me pretty much the entire time we were in college, and it was the kind of thing where uh, he had just been in love with me for so long that I felt like I kind of owed it to him to go out with him for a while. Uh, and I just finally gave in. I was like, okay, Matt, yes. Yes, we belong together. And Matt was a poet. And he, like, literally, he, like, wrote me a sonnet, you know? Like, he was that musician dude. And uh, so we were together, and we lived together for a little while. And then I moved on to, oh, God, Andy. Andy also played alto sax. <laughs> And I think Andy really, really, really did it for me because he was just the worst person I think I've ever dated. He was so mean, and he would come up with he would come up with the dis, like declarative decisions about the way that the world should work that totally did not jive with anything that I believed. Like for instance, we'd be like riding down the road and we'd p pass a pack of motorcycles, and he'd be like. Ugh. Look at that woman on the motorcycle. I would never allow a woman that I was with to ride on a motorcycle. And I was like, so if you were to get a motorcycle, like I couldn't get a motorcycle? And he's like, no, you would ride on the back with me. And I'm like, or I could just ride my own bike, right? And he's like, no, that's unacceptable. It was like things like that. And, you know, and it built over time. And I was like, I don't know, this guy, I got to cut this guy loose. He is not for me. And so uh, we had this big family reunion that I was supposed to go to him with. And I was like, well, I can't break up with him before the family reunion because that would be really embarrassing for him to show up at the family reunion without his girl, you know. So I pack, you know, and we had to like go stay overnight. And I pack all my stuff in my backpack for like the overnight. And I show up at his house and he's like, okay, uh, let's go for a drive. And I'm like, all right, you know, so we're like driving to the family and, he's, and then he starts like heading towards my house and I'm like, where are we going? And he's like, yeah, I just, I just wanted to tell you, I, I don't think this is going to work out. <laughs> and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I have been dating you out of mercy for like the past two weeks because of this stupid family reunion crap. And he's like, no, I think you've known you know, for longer than that. And I'm like, no, this is bullshit. And I was like, pull the car over right now. 
I was like, I can't stand to look at your face anymore. This is bullshit. I hate you. And I fucking pretended to like you for two weeks because of this freaking family reunion. I hate you. So he pulls the car up. Like, who pulls the car over? So he pulls the car over and I get out and I'm like, fuck you, as he like drives away, you know, because I'm like so angry that like I had to pretend to like this guy just out of mercy. And so now I'm like stuck on a country road because my parents live in the sticks. And I'm like, great, now I have to like schlep back to my parents' house and like walk up my driveway and be like, yeah, I'm not going on the trip. So it's not that, so I'm driving. And then all of a sudden a car pulls up beside me and it's my high school sister. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm walking home. And she's like, I thought you were going on this trip. And I'm like, not anymore. So I get in the thing. And she, we're like just sitting there in silence. And I'm like, like the fumes coming off of me must have been enough for her to be like, don't ask her what happened. So uh, thankfully, my parents did not ask. And uh, I'm really glad that I got out of the car that day because uh, six months later, I found out that he ended up marrying a distant cousin. So I really feel like I dodged a bullet on that one. Um, But the last musician that I ever dated uh, was this guy, Adam. And uh, we went on a date, and we're kind of like chit-chatting. And, uh, you know, I was like, well, I gotta tell you something. You know, at this point, I had kind of given up on musicians. But I was like willing to give this one another chance. And I was like, well, I got to tell you something. Sometimes guys think this is a little weird. Uh, I used to play the trumpet. And he was like, yeah, I used to play the trumpet too. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like I played the trumpet. Like I was really good. I went to music school. I like played professionally for a while. He's like, no, I was, I was good too. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, no. You weren't as good as me. <laughs> like pretty sure. And, uh, you know, we got to know each other a little bit more. And I was like, okay, yeah, you actually are like an okay musician. And uh, the thing that was really great about Adam was that he didn't have any of the qualities that all those other musicians had, which is um, you don't care about anything or anybody else except for music. Like he actually cared about me and loved that we both love music together. And now Adam is my husband and we have a three-year-old together. So maybe this isn't the best story to tell my daughter about not dating a musician. I don't know. But I think the other one should serve as a lesson. But anyway, I have some time to work on that one, right? We'll we'll polish it up. I I got at least 10 years, or maybe, I don't know. What do middle schoolers do? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, let's get to the last person. It's been long enough. So Christy Martino is co-founder of the design studio Hay and Martino and a political organizer fighting poverty and racism in America. Super lovable, like, noble causes. Born and raised in Binghamton, New York, she is now slowly going gray in Kittery Point, Maine, with her husband, Dylan, and two cats, Snoop and Oscar. Christy is an activist, a world traveler, and in treatment. Please, please give a warm welcome for our last performer tonight, Christy Martino. So my, <laughs> this is a true story. Um, my therapist, I told him about this, and he was like, you shouldn't do this. <laughs> uh, whatever. <laughs> when I was 15 years old, I gave up my virginity. I didn't lose it. I didn't drop it on the floor like a pair of glasses and go scuttling around on my hands and knees trying to find it, only to hear a crunch as I stepped on it in passing. The feeling was the same, though, a similar sticky moment where you find yourself so disappointingly careless. I came close to giving up at 14 on an island. It wasn't the kind of island you're picturing in your head right now. (laughs) My island was a tree-covered splat in between Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital and what we called the Audubon which was just a four-lane stretch of road connecting Binghamton to Vestal with a speed limit of 55, but an expectation of 85. To get to the island, you had to cross a man-made dam. 
plunging your feet into the river. And instead of an expanse of turquoise sea surrounding us, there were dumpsters and fluorescent lights. <laughs> the island was where the Laotian kids would put their cigarettes out on the arms of white kids who wanted to ride along, where the rich kids from the west side were always just three hours from getting their stomachs pumped, and the poor kids from the east side were laughing at the rich kids from the west side. We stopped laughing by the time we saw Jessica O'Keefe's body slip into the rushing current of the dam. There was one evening on the island where I was laid out on a rock in the moonlight after skinny dipping. I was naked and pale with a thick middle and spiny legs and arms, just like a crab dropped from the sky by a pigeon. We didn't have seagulls. <laughs> the boy with the bug eyes that I previously spent time with in a closet at Vicky Pritzakis's house was crouched beside the rock. I was really worried that his eyes would drop out and roll into the river. He asked if he should get a condom. So there I was, naked on an island, with a boy in the moonlight. I clutched my bare breast and screamed, no way, I'm fucking Catholic. <laughs> so growing up, when I wasn't at church or in closets, I was continuously submerged in music. Most of my music came from boys. My brothers gave me beautiful weirdos to emulate in Kate Bush and XTC. Before that, my father gave me Stacks and Soul, Sam and Dave, holding on all the way from New York to South Carolina in the summer when my family Buick was inspected and full, full of gas. I once thought I had discovered Elvis Costello all by myself, but nothing comes from nowhere. And even Elvis came from a cutish boy with a yellow button, Costello's iconic silhouette, spread legs with a guitar, merely a pickup line at the time. Ryan Sullivan was the boy that gave me hardcore. Hardcore music was heavy music, the kind of music that mothers and fathers were afraid of as they heard the screaming from underneath the door upstairs. The first hard hardcore show I went to was in Syracuse, New York. The kid with the car and a license and a single mom drove us an hour north to a club that was filled with cargo pants, headbands, and non-drinking animal rights activists. And yes, all these things fit together under the umbrella of that peculiar and desperate type of teenage anger subculture with a need to destroy the machine, fuck the police, while headbanging and throwing your fist in the air like you had a chance to ruin the world. It was exhilarating. The club was charged, the walls were sweaty, and the floor was loaded with bodies pumping and climbing and chanting, grabbing at the mic to match the singer's screams and get a closer look at the two black eyes he had at the same time. I felt hot and powerful and released. My mother and father were afraid of my music. They were afraid of my new army pants and my short haircut. They were really afraid of the Earth Crisis sweatshirt that had a picture of a cow being slaughtered on the front and the words animal liberation on the back. They weren't afraid of Ryan, but he was on the wrong side of the pews. Our last name was Martino. His was Sullivan. My father warned me that the Irish were no good, drunk, pansy firefighters that liked to beat their wives. Ryan's father was often red-faced and mean, and he beat his wife when he was home and not sleeping at the fire station. My father didn't drink, but he was just as mean, and he be beat his wife when he wasn't at the police station. Ryan himself was prone to fistfights at school, at shows, at Denny's, at the mall. But the worst were with his father in the cramped kitchen of his house on Schubert Street. My father never liked Ryan, but when you're 15, fathers are always wrong, and you know everything. And I was special because I was the only one who ever saw Ryan give up the violence and cry on my shoulder so hard that it was damp the next day. Hardcore music came into my life at the right time. Ryan was also the boy that got what I was giving up. I don't remember much about that night. I just remember he told me to buy condoms, but I was too embarrassed to buy them, so I stole them. I had this great trick where I'd grab a box at CVS and do a little browsing in the aisles while I opened the box with one hand, slipped out the condoms, closed up the box, and put it back on the shelf empty. It was genius, and I never got caught. I don't remember what I wore that night. 
I don't remember how I got to his house, much less walking up the stairs to the crawl space above his parents' garage. I don't even remember it hurting. All I remember is that something loud and fast was playing from social distortions, white light, white heat, white trash. And after it was over, he just got up and patted me on the head. Your first time is a landmark. Music, too, is a marker in the landscape. There are songs in my head that put me back in parking lots and basements above garages on islands. To this day, I can't listen to culture clubs Do You Really Want to Hurt Me without hearing the crunch of my tape cassette under the wheels of Ryan's Chevy Caprice. I had put it into the tape deck smiling, treasuring just a little bit of music that wasn't from a boy as far as I could remember, though it was probably definitely from one of the gay boys that I loved. <laughs> Ryan gave me a piercing, what the fuck is this shit? ripped it out of the deck, threw it out the window, and rolled over it, which, to be fair, was really an impressive thing. Um, we used to call a Chevy Caprice the boat. It was huge, and putting the rolling wheels over a three-by-four-inch rectangle in about five seconds, well, the boy could drive when he was mad for no reason. <laughs> Music can have strange bedfellows. There is an October night that is stamped with an ob combination, shoes, Kool-Aid, and Barbra Streisand. This time there was a party in the crawl space above Ryan's garage. I was in the corner talking to a prettier, older girl. I was telling her about how my mom wanted me to join a sorority, that she offered to pay me 50 bucks if I could just, for once in my life, try to be a little less weird. <laughs> I told the girl, I thought I'd take her up on it. I could see it being hilariously funny. I could wear pearls with my hoodies. <laughs> and as I said this, I saw Ryan out of the corner and my eye sprang up with that inscrutable peach face. He grabbed my arm, pulled me up, and out onto the stairway down to the driveway. I was confused, and the chill of the stairs ran up my spine through my socks. I got to put my shoes on, I said. He ducked his head back in and came out with my sneakers. He threw an overhand pitch, and the soles hit the side of my head. I almost had to laugh. Who throws shoes? And then he said, get the fuck out of here and stay out. The sort of thing you say to a dog that did something wrong. I didn't know what I did wrong. I honestly still don't know what I did almost 20 years later. I suppose I didn't get the fuck out fast enough, because he wrapped it up with one last gesture. He spit on me, the sort of thing you wouldn't even do to a dog. When things like that happen, the real memory shatters in your mind. You just get pieces. Most of the time, I feel like I made it up. But I don't think I did, because I can vividly recall running out into the dark street, stumbling to put my shoes on in the middle of the road. I heard someone run up behind me, and I saw Mark, Mike Barnes panting and out of breath. You okay, he said. Yep, just embarrassed, I said. He walked me to his house. He only lived a few blocks away. It wasn't terribly late, and his mom was still up and in the kitchen. He didn't say why I was there, and his mother never asked. We just sat down at the table, and she asked if I wanted any Kool-Aid. I said yes, and she brought over a little Dixie cup full to the brim. Mike stayed home, and I walked back towards Ryan's house out of habit and because I was from the other side of town, and I didn't know where else to go. I was walking slow, and I started singing because it was too quiet in that neighborhood. I had secretly been listening to a lot of Barbra Streisand because that is what a 15-year-old hardcore kid does in secret. <laughs> And she has this song called Free Again, and the chorus goes, take a look and you can see how much I love my freedom, my precious, precious freedom. Simple me, complicated, simple me. Back to where I used to be before I ever knew him. So clearly, I could fit in well with the drama kids as well. <laughs> Ryan's capacity for cruelty was jarring. But if I thought hard enough about it, there was no surprise. He was a dog in his life too so I gave up thinking about it. I somehow got home that night, opening the side door to my house slowly, an eternity between the cellar stairs and my bedroom. I made it past my parents with the aid of my soft feet and their prescription for sleeping pills. 
I closed my door, climbed into bed, put my headphones on, and screamed along in silence. I gave up a lot when I was 15, and it took a long, long time to try and get a little back. When I was 15, I got music from a boy, but the heartbreak was all mine. Thank you. Please don't cut the jam on Don't Fear the Reaper. Whoops, sorry. This is bullshit. I hate you and I fucking pretended to like you for two weeks because of the spring and family reunion.